Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to the podcast from wherever you are. This is Lorcan Owens. I am the host and editor of the Nazara podcast. Nazara is Arabic for opinion, perspective or insight. I'm joined in this episode by Drum Khail, who is a Northern Irish Lebanese academic based between London and Belfast and I believe all around the world. Drew, you can confirm that yourself in a few minutes. You are a research fellow at Queen's University Belfast. Your work focuses on many areas, but broadly speaking, we're talking about the areas of countering violent extremism, refugee rights, democracy building, peace building, etc. In this episode, we will be talking about Northern Ireland and Lebanon. But before we get started today, if you'd like to introduce yourself, Drew, and tell us a little bit more about your research and your areas of interest. I don't want to sit here and bore everyone to tears about my own background, but I'll just add to what you just said by saying that I like to sit at the intersection between the academy or scholarship and real world practice. Whenever I started my journey on whatever it is that I do now, which I'm not quite sure I've nailed or I'm able to give the elevator pitch in one sentence, I really wanted to at least have my research become actionable in the real world. So whenever I started working across uh, violent extremism, refugees, East Africa, the Levant, uh, youth radicalization, quite a different composite career, I wanted to make sure that whatever I was researching actually impacted policy and real world uh, programming, be it local NGOs, grassroots, or international NGOs and supranational organizations. Unfortunately, one of the problems with the academy that I hold is that we often have our papers and our research sitting behind paywalls and closed access. So to combat that, I would do shows like this, of course, so thank you for inviting me on, but also contribute public access articles. So if you type my name or if you look at my social media, particularly Twitter, there'll be links there for anyone who wants to catch up on those topics. As I said earlier, we'll be talking today about Northern Ireland and Lebanon. We'll start with Lebanon first, the most recent news coming out of the country as if it couldn't get any worse. The execution, the assassination, the murder of Lukman Slim, who was a well-known critic of Hezbollah, free thinker in the eyes of the state, a non-conformist. What does the murder of Lukman Slim mean for the future of Lebanon's civil society, for the future of free thinkers and non-conformists, activists, journalists, anyone who challenges the status quo or who seeks accountability? And is this an escalation into the unknown? Because, and you can correct me if I'm wrong on this, I'm not aware of recent assassinations, murders of prominent figures of his magnitude, and in particular, free thinkers, nonconformists. What could this mean for the future of the country? Yeah, it's shocking and angering. And as a warning to your listenership, I will be saying we whenever I reference issues on the island of Ireland and also in Lebanese as well. So we, the Lebanese side, there was a lot of anger and a lot of distress. Obviously, it has had a particularly poor year. Effectively, we've had complete economic collapse that came after quite a hopeful moment in 2019 with the Thawra movement, which sparked quite a lot of imagination and hope for the future of Lebanon that has systematically and summarily been completely destroyed and chipped away. And then in the interim period between that economic collapse and that 
partial hopeful moment. We had the destruction on August 4th of a quarter of downtown Beirut, and particularly East Beirut. Billions worth of damage, hundreds of thousands of people homeless, and over 200 people killed, to which there has not been one ounce of accountability. And in the interim period, there has been calls by the Lebanese public to initiate an international investigation into that moment. Those calls have been ignored, like the calls in October 2019, and any calls for accountability and reform are generally ignored by the Zayim, the traditional Lebanese leaders. The resilience of this system has been particularly frustrating. Lokman Slim's assassination, for me, comes in a long line of historical assassinations in Lebanon of free thinkers and those who are calling for accountability and those who are pushing back against the suppression. Some Asir comes to mind in 2005, pushing back against the oppression of the Syrian occupation of Lebanon. But there are more in the post-Syrian occupation Lebanon and they exist during the civil war of which 19,000 people were disappeared as a result of the civil war. And they existed before the Lebanese civil war. Assassinations and blood has been a lubricant in Lebanese politics, in the Lebanese polity, for a long time. The reasons and the perpetrators of the different assassinations, and let's be honest, murders, cold-blooded murders, of activists like Luchman Slim, is different, and different actors perpetrate them at different points, but often to move the country in terms of the hegemony of certain political actors. It was shocking because Luchman Slim has been a critic of Hezbollah as a Shia living in the South for as long as he's been in the public eye. So I think that there's a lot of questions over the timing of this killing. Similarly, whenever we look at the murders of Mohammed Chatta in 2013, we can see there's a clear pattern of those who are targeted, those who seek to change Lebanon for the better, those who seek accountability, those who seek the creation and the manifestation of the promise of what Lebanon should be, which is a bastion of freedoms in this cosmopolitan, multi-ethnic state. And the murder of Luqman Slim is an absolute crime. At a point when Lebanese morale, especially those who work in the circles of Luqman Slim and those in the civil society movements, he was a very well-known figure and a very influential figure and a very well-respected figure are already reeling from the hits that I have previously mentioned. And what I think that this symbolizes, I mean, of course, we had the conclusion of the Special Tribunal for Lebanon this summer, which, depending on how you read what happened, I think that it was a landmark case to have an international investigation into a murder itself. But of course, those who are seeking accountability and an end to impunity in Lebanon were not satisfied and have not been satisfied because the one person who was fingered as a perpetrator has not come to justice. We're worried about what else Lebanon can go through before we see a state that we love vanish. And Luchman Slim's murder, I keep repeating his name because his name shouldn't be forgotten and the work that he stood for shouldn't be forgotten because I mentioned the disappeared earlier and one of his major works was seeking restitution and restorative justice for the some 19,000 people who were disappeared during the Lebanese Civil War. So this was a man committed to reconciliation. This was a man committed to envisioning and actualizing that dream of cosmopolitan Lebanon, and he was murdered in cold blood. So I'm pretty fucking angry about it, and that sentiment is shared across the board. And what I think it means to put my analysis hat on 
is that it means that there are forces within the state who are happy with the status quo. There are forces within the state that do not want to shift to accountability and a state that ends in punity and a state that brings people to justice. Throughout the state, and I'm not fingering one particular actor or party out, although there are parties that are certainly more hegemonic in Lebanon and have more ability to wield violence in Lebanon than others. This is a failure systematically across Lebanese governance, judiciary, and political parties. And that systematic failure is not a bug in the system that the current crop of political parties are trying to work out, but systematically in place to make sure that we don't have justice, that we don't move the state on. So Luckman Slim's murder, as disgusting as it is and as outraged as we should be, unfortunately comes in a long line of people being moved out of the way who have tried to build accountability in the state. And we're at a real critical juncture in Lebanon. And we can go one way or we can go the other. It's very difficult under considering the COVID dynamic that's happening in Lebanon to actually people to come out into the street. But bear in mind, when we did come out into the street in the aftermath of the August 4 blast, how the Lebanese state greeted those protesters straight away with tear gas as a message then that their protests were not legitimate and calling for accountability and democratization of the state are somehow calling for something that's illegitimate. So I think that we have to paint Luhmann's murder within the wider understanding of where Lebanon is and who the current parties in power who are trying to push back against a growing call for democratization. Was it a step too far from the perspective of the perpetrators? Probably Hezbollah. They're trying to kill any kind of dissent. They're trying to silence people through fear. There has been such a backlash against the system for the past two years in a way unprecedented in the past that they don't have the hold over people that they had. There are plenty of other dissenters out there. There are plenty of other people from the Shia sect alone who are not going to just sit idly by and allow fear to consume them because in another sense, people have nothing to lose. I characterize Lebanon's history and the outright murder of Samir Asir, Mohamed Shatta, Jirvan Twaini, the list goes on. And then not only those, but members of Lebanese institutions within security forces as well. And no justice has been brought. So I'm someone who likes to look at the glass in a half full perspective. So my natural inclination is to try and say that I hope that it's a watershed moment. And the talk is currently, well, whether or not it's just another sad chapter in Lebanon's long line of losing democratic defenders that we need because they get murdered or they don't have a hold over particular ethnic constituencies or they're not from a long lineage of families or they're not beholden or in bed with those particular families to gain power. But then I look at that history that we have, 2013 and before is not an awful long time, especially in Lebanon, especially in a state that doesn't have institutional reform, so it's not like things move very quickly. And I'm not hopeful. I'm not hopeful. Hezbollah has been involved in the Syrian civil war, helping, unfortunately, in a very effective way, put down popular protests. I mean, of course, from their perspective, they're fighting terrorists and the Siasadists line on it. But let's be real. They have already become very well practiced at putting down popular dissent against the hegemonic powers. This is not going to be an easy group to remove from the system. We have a political block divide in Lebanon between March 14 and March 8, and a large part of March 14's platform, at least in the earlier days, was 
a call for the removal of Hezbollah's weapons to at least make it a true polity rather than the creation of the largest and most powerful non-state actor militia in the world. Um, that definitely colors and creates hegemonic powers within Lebanese politics. But make no mistake, everyone is involved in the game, the ethno-sectarian constituent building, replication of their own power and capture of the state. Everyone is involved in that. To some degrees, I definitely don't think that there are a number of parties that would be up for murder of dissenters, for sure. I don't think that that's the case. Not all Lebanese parties are happy to off their intra-ethnic or intra-sect rivals. However, Long story short, to answer your question, I don't see how Lebanon maneuvers out of this situation that we're in currently. I think that you characterized a potential scenario where things are going to get so bad that even within uh, communities looked after by Hezbollah, not only Hezbollah, but other political parties, what we've seen in Tripoli in the north, what we've seen in other constituent strongholds, where the situation becomes so desperate that people will have nothing to lose. That it becomes a case of, well, it's better that we die with dignity or tend to push back against those people who are still overlording and still overseeing the lack of grain and the lack of goods, hyperinflation. But again, I'm fearful of what that might look like. I'm also fearful of the fact that we're not at this situation by accident. I said it was not a bug in the system, but it's systemically implanted. What you have is an elite cartel in Lebanon that is very good at replicating its own power. And it's very good at making one community, their own community, fearful of others. So I'm afraid in situations where there's heightened tension and the anger is rightly directed like it was in October 2019 with Kilon, all means all, that it starts to dissipate and break down into intersect rivalries that we have seen that have come to characterize Lebanese politics since 1975. That's a fear. I can't predict how this will go. Popular mass mobilizations are important, but at some point we need to start capturing institutions because this is decades long institutionalization of Lebanon beholden to this sect cartel. There has to be a pushback and to de-weed the state is going to take a long time. There is no magic bullet for that. It's going to take hard work. It's going to take hopefully not the continued brain drain of Lebanon. It's going to take international stabilization for the economy so we don't lose all of our best people. I'm sitting in London, so I can't talk shit, right? My best friends all live in Lebanon and most of them are done with it. And it's not us with this shit. I have no future. I want to start a family. And I can't turn around and say, well, you know, you need to stay there because, ah, you know, don't leave Lebanon in the hands of the worst people. I've become the biggest hypocrite in the world because where the fuck am I living? You know, I've lived in Beirut and I couldn't live there for the rest of my life because of those problems. So the future doesn't look particularly bright right now. I wouldn't recommend the policy of let it get worse so we can destroy it and build it back up again because it becomes a very uncontrollable situation after that. But also to speak positively because that sounds very negative. The reality is that I think there was a Pandora's box moment that was opened in 2019. In Thaura 2019, highlighted something that I felt, having studied Lebanon longitudinally, it was a positive to see a real multi-regional, multi-ethnic, cross-ethnic, cross-class protest in Lebanon. Lebanon has long been associated with multiple protests, but what was special about that was a united recognition across the different regions that the current leadership is to blame one and all. I don't think that that cat's going back into the box. 
I don't think that we can shut that box. So if there is any hope, is that it's moving forward with that recognition that the current forces who have overseen the complete collapse of the state are not the answer. And the answer is to organize professionally. We have elections soon, next year, officially scheduled for next year. That'll be four years after May 2018. We need to maintain that anger until 2022. If the current situation shows up, we probably will have that anger. We'll have enough to complain about. We won't have any justice for the Beirut blast. We'll continue to have acts of impunity. And we need to start reclaiming institutions to really recapture the Lebanese state from the hands of the Tzim. That is the question. I remember even when I was in Beirut in November in 2019 and the Saura was in full sway at that stage, there was a lot of enthusiasm. They were saying the right things anger translating into passion but I was thinking to myself how is this going to translate into actually making a tangible difference for the next two or three years how are all the various movements of protest going to translate into an actual potential alternative there's the activism on Instagram there has been the street protests Mm. the problem has been diagnosed ad nauseum but Mm. how do you translate that into an actual workable alternative the problem is, as I said, that the current Zion have established a very resilient system. They're very good at staying in power. Why? Because they have social, political, economic control of the state. And social, political, economic control of the state is a very broad statement. But media control. Each party has its own media channel. I mentioned Samit Asir, and the foundation in his name is creating a longitudinal media accountability program and project to retrain journalists to make sure that they're actually investigating and reporting the news more widely. The different work by Megaphone News and other really good outlets that show at what point different major Lebanese leaders were made aware of the problem that was going on in the port. However, what we need is more of that. We see projects like that. We see the retaking of the lawyer syndicate. We see that being taken by a non-Zion person establishing and beginning to turn that anger, that social mobility, to put it behind real life projects. That anger is good because what we're seeing is international donors and funders are completely rerouting the Lebanese state from the 4th of August. Now they want to reroute the Lebanese state directly, which is good. This is a positive step. And each one will take a long time. It's going to take a real mobilization from that online space to that on-street space to then deciding to coalesce, organize, and it's going to take consistent institutionalization and mobilization and trying to identify at what point the state and making sure that the Central Bank of Lebanon is not completely captured by people close to Aoun or different political parties, that not every part, public and private and semi-private industry in the state is not captured by this clique. And it's going to take a while. And that's exactly what needs to happen. And there needs to be a settling in for the long fight. Moving on now to Northern Ireland. Brexit is in full swing at this point. Northern Ireland is under a unique arrangement in that it will be remaining within the EU single market while still being an integral part of the United Kingdom. And yet already we're seeing the implications of Brexit in terms of creating an unstable environment in Northern Ireland. There was a fear that if we had a land border between North and South, that that would lead to an increase in tensions, sectarianism, and perhaps violence from the Republican side, from the nationalist side. And yet now we're seeing that the imposition of a customs border, at least in the Irish Sea between mainland Britain and Northern Ireland, 
has led to an increase in tensions coming from the unionist and loyalist community who view the border as a threat to their integrity as part of the UK. They view it as an affront to their identity. And we are already seeing an increase in sectarian tensions and rhetoric. We're seeing threats being made against customs staff at ports in Larne and Belfast. We are seeing a resurgence in interest in a united Ireland. These are the implications of Brexit. Are you fearful about the threat that Brexit might cause to the peace process? And is the status quo that we have enjoyed for so long now under threat? We've been warning about this since 2016. (laughs) Quite simply, I'm tired of repeating myself about the fact that Northern Ireland may have been post-violence, but not post-conflict. What the Good Friday Agreement did, the Belfast or Good Friday Agreement in 1998 did for Northern Ireland was essentially kick the can down the road of the large constitutional question, which was the central dividing line, which was the question of whether or not Northern Ireland should remain a part of the UK or should join with the South or be reunited with the South, depending on your particular lexicon in your community. What the Good Friday Agreement, Belfast Agreement did was, while simultaneously not answering that question, it allowed the creation of a devolved government and legacy issues to slowly dwindle through the polity of that devolved government and to be dealt with over time. And we've seen halts since 1998, suspensions of the government, whenever key issues like disarmament came up, decommissioning. We have seen suspensions of our own devolved government whenever issues regarding the conflict have come up. One of the main issues that caused the 2017 suspension of the government was the Irish language, because we still live in a deeply divided and polarized society between the Protestant Unionist Loyalist community and the Catholic Republican Nationalist community. And despite the fact that the Good Friday Agreement was a mandated, outlined language agreement, was mandated in the Good Friday Agreement, it was so hot-button and contentious that it effectively was the big issue. There were other issues on the table, like reforming certain institutional clauses or parliamentary clauses that lead to vetoes in the Northern Irish Assembly. But that was the big issue. That was the big talking point. And it led to a suspension for over three years. Now, what happened in the interim period since 1998 to 2020, and I won't go into 2016 just yet. I split my time growing up in my earlier years between the Gulf, Beirut and Belfast. So I was there for the majority of the 90s in Belfast at the end of the trouble cycle. The Good Friday Belfast Agreement changed the social face of Northern Ireland. It made a significant improvement on people's lives, despite the fact that I mentioned that there were suspensions, The occurrence of daily violence, the ritual of having to change your route home or experience delays because of a bomb scare or waking up and seeing who had been killed, the whole raft of things that come in conflict were not there in Northern Ireland. Immeasurably, it was a better place. That doesn't mean to say that we didn't have our issues and particularly that we didn't have two communities that whilst some inroads had been made, Clearly what Brexit has shown us and the division in Brexit is that there has not been a coalescence of communities to create a third identity. And I'll speak a little bit more personally on this and the fact that kicking the can down the road, either it's an in or out proposition, that the in or out to uniting with Ireland or staying within the UK automatically sets up a dichotomy that almost can't be reconciled. However, what the Good Friday Agreement, Belfast Agreement did through different institutional means was try to create our Language Act is one of them, to try and create 
a political social space in which participants like me, for example, I carry both an Irish and a British passport, along with a Lebanese identity card. We're able to pick and belong to a state or feel that our belonging to a state is there. And there are deficits for both communities in the fact that on one side in the Protestant Unionist Loyalist community, you might feel, oh, there's creeping republicanism. I don't want to see Irish signs. I don't want to see signs in Irish, et cetera, et cetera. Fine. Similarly, on the Catholic uh, Republican nationalist side, I want to see the signs. I want to make sure that my children can be very commonly educated in Irish, for example. So there are deficits there that always were stumbling blocks for people really fully engaging. But what we saw in the polling from 98 onwards was a group of a third identity. And you can see that in maybe the Alliance Party, which is a non-ethnic party's growth and popularity. In the last elections, it was its most successful National Assembly vote. It captured more percentage of the 90 Assembly members than it had previously had before. Great. So we saw this growth. What happened in 2016 was the kaleidoscope shaking. And what it brought was front and center the deeply held ethnic fears of the Protestant Loyalist Unionist community to the forefront. That in leaving the European Union and the fact that we border in Northern Ireland a European Union state, that there would come very problematic institutional issues that would either, in their mind, bring us closer to a united Ireland and further away or hasten the departure from the UK. And this was all explained in the run-up to the Brexit vote. And this was all explained in the multiple negotiations under May and Johnson, the impact of Northern Ireland. Hence why we had the talk for months on end about the Northern Irish backstop, because the European Union it was part of its negotiation, a commitment to Northern Ireland to make sure that it didn't backslide into violence. And this was a problem because the UK government was saying, well, okay, well, how do we get over the imposition of a potential border in Northern Ireland? And what the DUP in particular, and the Protestant Loyalist Unionist community generally had an extreme fear, anxiety, that is linked to their identity and their state belonging, that a border, the Irish Sea border, because that skips over having a land border with the Republic of Ireland automatically means that they can't engage economically with the United Kingdom, which is the entire entity of which their whole entire political and social identity is based on. So before we get to the where do we go from here and the fear, all this was explained. Despite the fact that in the months of the discussion of the backstop, the DUP blasély said, no, there are other means we can establish the land border where it's not going to take hours and hours and it's going to be fine. And there are new technologies, which were all just pulled out of the hat and didn't exist and still haven't existed. And if they did exist, they'd be in use. And then people like Jacob Rees-Mogg, who's not a fucking real person anyway, he's a caricature, describing, well, you know, during the Troubles, we used to have this. I'm like, you fucking dick. You weren't here during the Troubles. You didn't have to have your car searched. Obviously, I was living in East Belfast, so that's not really much of a problem for me, but it wasn't a daily event. But then as an adult, I crossed the border regularly and appreciated the fact that I could do it automatically and not have to wait hours to cross one side and then go to the other. So we had all this fugazi <laughs> being claimed by the hardline Brexiteers who were so on the Rue Britannia train that they forgot to actually really understand that these mechanisms would cause an impact to the ordinary Protestant on the ground who is afraid, rightly or wrongly, and we can talk about that and we should talk about that because as a student of ethnic conflict, I'm not into dismissing people's identity. That's how we lead to violence, right? They had 
genuine concerns, which have turned out to be true, that they wouldn't be able to economically engage as well in the UK. And that's turned out to be true. And those warnings to the DUP and to the Tory government were made consistently in the years in the negotiation. And lo and behold, what we said was Northern Irish politics would darken. If we didn't think that this would have an impact, you were fooling yourself that there is a part of the community that will feel and will see this and will read this as a furthering away from effectively the nation of which they subscribe. And that's what we've seen. And it's sad. It's again infuriating. So thank you for allowing me on to have this cathartic <laughs> talk with you to both be infuriated about Lebanon and about Northern Ireland. And again, I'm very deeply fearful about a potential backslide into violence. Will it be to the same extent of the troubles? I don't think so. I hope not. But I don't think that that should be a barometer to say, oh, well, at least we don't have the troubles marked too. That's not really an appropriate political answer for me. I hope that the fears of a particular community are listened to, of the Protestant Unis Loyalist community is listened to and heard, and that we try to address a protocol at some point that at least assages those fears. Concurrently, we've potentially hastened a border poll. Not potentially, the likelihood is that we've hastened the march towards a border poll because people are gonna lose out economically. Whether or not we sort out the sea border issue to an extent, Northern Ireland's economy is largely based on agriculture. Agriculture is a significant part of its economy. And we're now missing our most significant customer in the European Union. And it's a largely dominated industry. Whether or not that proves enough of a carrot for Protestant farmers to begin to look at a united Ireland as a deeply, it's definitely not a deeply held belief, but as a potential option to rejoin the Union and to bring more economy to Northern Ireland. It's a possibility. But the fact is now Brexit has fundamentally shaken how we view the future of the state economically and socially and politically. And there's a long way to go. And it's fraught, quite frankly, with a number of potential dangers, which, and again, looking back at the history of Northern Ireland, that we have to understand that violence is a very real possibility. I'm trying to get into the unionist mentality that didn't conduct even a modicum of a risk analysis of these events. Now, in fairness, the UUP did not want Brexit. The Ulster Farmers Union, just because you mentioned farmers, they did not want, and they don't want, a border in Ireland. And they explained the rationale. The lorries that collect the milk in the morning, they cross from Donegal to Tyrone and Fermanagh, and it all goes to the one creamery, and it could be in Monaghan, or it could be wherever. And they spelled out, in real terms, the logistics of how it just doesn't work anymore because we're too intertwined. But I'm trying to understand the mentality of an extreme cohort of unionism that is always negative, that is hell-bent on pursuing this intransigent, unworkable, illogical mechanism. You mentioned the border. We've what, 400 roads crisscrossing. Some of them are back roads, farms either mm -hmm. side of the border. It doesn't work. We don't want it for obvious mm -hmm. historical, social, emotional reasons. And now we have the protocol and there are teething problems about garden seeds and about pets and stuff like that. And I'm not trying mm -hmm. to downplay it because we haven't actually no. tested the protocol. We have COVID. We have been able to stockpile to a large degree. So I feel that it hasn't mm -hmm. actually been tested. And we don't know how many more delays or dysfunction could be caused from the protocol. But Arlene Foster came out and rightly lambasted the EU for their fuck up, quite frankly. 
And then immediately, simultaneously said, and by the way, we need to get rid of this protocol. Trying to understand the long-term strategy of that particular cohort of unionism. I'm not saying unionism as a whole, because a lot of unionists no. are very pragmatic, logical, very reasonable mm-hmm. people, and they are dealing with the implications of an English decision. Let's be honest about it. Brexit is an English mm-hmm. decision. But I don't know what their strategy is, where they see this going, or is it just the last in their ongoing battle that they play out since the 1690s, that this is just another reincarnation of previous battles with perceived enemies? Yeah, you hit the nail on the head. I can't read the minds. I mean, for years I thought about what's the end goal here? What's the strategy? I think that there is an element. I've refused to believe that the DUP is full of, yes, you just characterize them hardline, yes, right wing, socially, economically, all the rest of it. But do you think that it's plausible that every single member in what effectively is the largest party in Northern Ireland, paid up member, contributing member, every councillor, every MLA person, didn't have an understanding about how this might end up? (laughs) It doesn't sound plausible to me, right? I definitely think that there are certainly some members of the party who probably understood that this would probably end up where we are. Again, I have no insight into this. This is just me spitballing that like the Tory party in a way, and I'm not excusing Johnson's terrible, obviously, or not excusing Theresa May and David Cameron before, trying to understand that they had this European working group side of the party. They had this group who were particularly hardline that was gunning for their position. And they were gunning through their position because they were looking to ethnically outflank them, to get on the Faragean bus of establishing great British ideals and dominance over the overbearing tyrannical European Union. I have critiques of the European Union myself, you know, overbearing and wanting to dominate. But the lack of British identity was certainly not one of the overarching critiques that I had. But that current existed within that party. Similarly, within the DUP, we know that there are very, very extreme currents. There are currents that would quite happily go back to Paisley senior days, not the Paisley senior who that sat down with Martin McGuinness and Ford, quite a successful partnership in governance, but a Paisley of a yesteryear. Um, that current still exists. Actually, I think that that was probably a problem with the UUP under Mike Nesbitt. He had a party that was trying to desperately create a political direction for himself. And he thought, you know what, I'm a moderate unionist and I'm going to be a moderate unionist voice and the UUP is going to recapture it. And the horse had already bolted for them. And sadly, it was too little, too late. And I think that that really would have been very helpful in terms of Northern Irish politics. Same way that I completely lambast when people ask me about Northern Irish politics, I always talk about the death of David Irvine. I think that that was really problematic. And unfortunately, you didn't have that credible, progressive, left-wing, unionist, loyalist, Protestant that was an effective politician. So his death really was problematic. And I think that at that point, what we saw in Northern Ireland from David Irvine's death and from the post-Good Friday politics was leaning into the more extremes of both currents. Despite the fact that what I said earlier, you might think that actually sounds dichotomous, but it's not. On the social scene, there was a coalescing of a Northern Irish identity, but that concurrently happened in parallel with the more extreme flag raising of the two largest parties of Sinn Féin and the DUP. And the DUP, as you said, has established a strategy of pushing back. Ulster says no to the 1985 Anglo-Irish Agreement. Ulster says no to Sotheby's in the EU Parliament and calls Pope John Paul II 
part of the devil and gets thrown out. This is the history of the party, right? And those currents don't disappear, especially whenever a figure is so important as Paisley led the charge initially. And I think that there is a balancing of that. And I really think that it's really hard to reimagine coming from that background. How do you reimagine politics in the province? How do you reimagine despite the fact that your entire identity is your union with the UK. That's the fundamental basis. How do you reimagine that? And similarly, trying to be balanced and fair here, I don't think that Sinn Féin has, I don't agree with their entire approach to Brexit and to the vote either. I think that clandestine as it was, I think that it has accelerated Protestant fears. Truly, I think that it's not a party that has really sought to create partnerships since that Paisley-McGuinness partnership dissipated, there hasn't really been an effective partnership between those two parties. There are other reasons for that, like the heating scandal and the different sort of issues that it much more descended into something akin to a divorce rather than actually the happy marriage of, what did they call them, the Chuckle Brothers, which represented effective leadership and effective partnership that is now dissipated. And the older I get, the more I realize that these high-level politics is about personalities that can reach across the aisle. I certainly have strong antithesis towards Peter Robinson's social and political politics, but at the same time, I can effectively say that I was very happy about the partnership that they were able to create with Sinn Féin because it helped push Northern Ireland forward. However, that partnership does not exist. And in the interim period, I think Sinn Féin has almost been proven correct that Brexit was going to bring a fundamental shift in Northern Irish politics that would accelerate a border pool, which is their entire raison d'etre. But in the interim period, they have not paved the way to lessening Protestant, loyalist, unionist, real existential fears about what that might look like for them if a united Ireland were to happen. And that's on them as well. Now, if we can go back in time and say, okay, well, maybe Sinn Féin do try to reach across the aisle and do try to engage the DUP and the Protestant electorate and understanding and paving the way, would it have made a difference? Maybe not. You'd probably just say the DUP might have just weaponized that further. But say United Ireland happens, are we not to expect that there will be, depending on what it might look like, and there are many different institutional means to manage a United Ireland that can potentially go some way to assaging Protestants born in the north of Ireland who are allowed to apply for a UK passport, who have a devolved government in Stormont and have autonomy over their own constituencies that actually have these real life governmental mechanisms that can go some way to massaging their fears. Where are these conversations happening? They're not happening. Therefore, fears are going to go up. So I'm not sticking up for the DUP, I'm sticking up for the electorate or the Protestant constituency who actually has deep-seated and honest worries about what their future might look like. And I think that too often they've been conflated with one another. And that's part of the issue. And we haven't had an equitable opposition that is willing to engage, at least since the death of Martin McGuinness. You're absolutely right. Even here in the South, we don't have these conversations about the compromises we would need to make if there was a united Ireland. From a Protestant perspective, unionist, I can completely understand why they don't want the Irish tricolour to be their flag. They associate that with IRA funerals. They don't want solely a Dublin parliament, a unitary state. That's not going to work. It would need to be a federal state. Forget about devolution. It would need to be an actual federation with significant powers. They would need to have huge amounts of power and control over their cultural institutions, recognition of Ulster Scotland. A confederal state that you have in Switzerland, for example, where yeah. people have cultural autonomy, yes, and control over their linguistic and their education of their children, yes. From their point of view as well, and I think this is completely overlooked, unionists in the north 
have deep-seated concerns going back all the way to 1912 when they signed the Ulster Solemn League and Covenant. They don't trust Ireland to be an economically viable state. When you talk to unionists, they say, well, time and again, you go through bouts of recession, bouts of boom, bust. And that originally, in fairness to them, their argument originally was, we don't want home rule because it would mean Rome rule. And they were correct in that. But they also said home rule would mean Ireland being rendered a basket case. And these economic issues, I think Sinn Féin also completely ignores because Sinn Féin is very much a left-wing party. So purely from an economic point of view, unionists can't see eye to eye with Sinn Féin on economic issues, let alone all the other baggage. And this comes to my final question. If there is going to be a border poll, maybe we should have three questions. Do you want to remain in the United Kingdom? Do you want to unite or join the Republic of Ireland? Or do you want Northern Ireland to be an independent state? Ugh. I think the more options for the electorate, the better. Nothing will push us further to violence if we don't give people a choice or a say in how they're going to be governed. The reality is we're in a really dicey moment, unfortunately, and it saddens me. It really genuinely saddens me to hear some of the rhetoric that I grew up with being brought back, and it's worrisome. A lot of my family and friends reside in Northern Ireland, and it's not something that anyone wants to revisit. How do we avoid it? Even before we get to a border pole, there's going to be a lot of water that needs to pass under quite a few bridges at that point. The next assembly election will probably tell us quite a significant amount about the direction Northern Ireland goes in. I've been quite impressed the fact that SDLP has been revitalized, quite frankly, under newer, better leadership recently. Ostensibly a nationalist organization, but significantly softer language and language that is trying to reach across the aisle, also interpret a potential joint future or what a future would look like for Protestant constituents in Northern Ireland. These people are not going to go away and they shouldn't go away. This is where they've lived. This is where they've grown up and this is the land in which they come from and they identify with. However, we have to be able to get better at reimagining, and your border poll idea is a good one, reimagining how Northern Irish politics will look, how a devolved government will look under the UK post-Brexit. And you rightfully mentioned we're not even at the crest of the wave regarding the impacts of the protocols going to have because we've been so limited by COVID movement. And that was an important point that I missed. But actually on what it might look like under a scenario of a United Ireland. And we really, really, and if you're of the inclination that a United Ireland should absolutely happen, then that's a conversation that needs to involve the whole island. And that's a conversation that needs to involve both parties actually engaging in effective political issues, not just on the small p issues, because we had this talk during a few elections. Prior to Brexit, we had our assembly elections, and it was overstated at that point. There was a talk in Northern Ireland. This is going to be the first election where we don't talk about the constitution isn't a problem anymore. We're going to be talking about how we get healthcare to people. And we talk, as you said, those more bread and butter ideological left versus right issues. I didn't quite believe it all the way, but there was something about the rhetoric that showed how far the country had come or the province had come. We're not going back to that point. There's not going to be a political issue involved in Northern Ireland now that does not have rooted at the center of it what happens if we reunite with Ireland or stay within the UK. And that has got to be the political calculation going forward for all the parties involved, including Westminster, including Dublin. And failure to really agree on it. And we've seen Westminster-Dublin agreements really come together. The Anglo-Irish agreement still stands to me as a preeminent, excellent negotiation 
it was an important document that led to peace in Northern Ireland. And it wasn't that long ago that Northern Ireland was considered unsolvable because of this dichotomous political constitutional question. We have proven that it is not unsolvable. We have proven that there are accommodations that can be made that can bring peace. And now it's time to really engage with some really important, innovative, good leadership at the executive levels that can assage fears of different communities and actually seek to talk about these issues more publicly because they're going to become more prevalent. And if we keep them in the dark, then we're going to only encourage extremist voices who are going to be rallied up by opportunistic politicians and then we'll have some real problems, either remaining or staying the same or reuniting with Ireland. It would end up someone's going to be massively pissed off if we don't lay the groundwork before them. Effectively, it comes down to basic dialogue, good leadership, cool heads. All the shit we've been missing for the last four years. <laughs> you just named a politics of compromise as essential to working it out. But what about since 2016 that has been about compromise and about understanding? And I mean, Tony Blair gets a lot of credit for bringing the Good Friday Agreement and pushing it as a mediator. But John Major also deserves credit. This was a man who made several political steps. Whenever you listen to John Major nowadays, he almost sounds like I lived there with someone else. It doesn't seem like the Tory party would be interested in really, apart from the bald rhetoric about Northern Ireland is important to us. And They had Julian Smith and they got rid of him. A hundred percent right. They showed the ball on that one. They took away the secretary for Northern Ireland, who was widely considered to be doing a pretty decent job and had respect of different across the political class in Northern Ireland. So at what point do we see that there is appetite for a compromise and good leadership? Yeah, we have the conundrum. Well, thanks for sharing your insights of both Northern Ireland and Lebanon to hear the perspectives of somebody who understands the two countries so well is really really fascinating so thank you so much for your time i found that very very enjoyable i have to say sorry for uh, marching over the top you <laughs> i don't know about much of a conversation as me like having a therapy session so thank you for that well as i said it's hard to find somebody who understands two countries that are in different parts of the world and yet have an awful lot in common in terms of issues we have discussed they're quite comparable and yet they're very distinct having lived in both Northern Ireland, having lived in Lebanon, you are effectively a primary source. You understand the nuances, you understand the society and politics in these countries. And that passion and that interest really came across. I was delighted to have you on. And thanks so much, Drew. You too. Thank you.